Our speaker for tonight, I should ask, are you a rabbi? I am a rabbi, yeah. He's a rabbi. <laughs> uh, our speaker for tonight, who is a rabbi, um, has come here by luck. This program was not a planned program. It's an opportunistic program. We at CSP, when we get opportunities, we like to grab them. And um, when uh, Rabbi Alon Goshen Gottstein, did I pronounce that right? Is it Gottstein? It's close. It's close enough. Um, he, when he was coming down for a, bar, a bat mitzvah this weekend um, and wanted to speak to our group, a double bat mitzvah, twins, um, we, we took the opportunity. Um, Rabbi Godstein, uh, Goshen Gottstein is acknowledged as one of the world's leading figures in interreligious dialogue, specializing in bridging the theological and academic dimension with a variety of practical initiatives, especially involving world religious leadership. He's both a theoretician and an activist, setting trends and precedents in the, glo in the global interfaith arena. He is the founder and director of the Elijah Interfaith Institute, formerly the Elijah School uh, for Study of Wisdom and World Religions, and its rich website is testimony to his many and varied activities. A noted scholar in Jewish studies, he's held academic posts at Tel Aviv University and has served as director of the Center for the Study of Rabbinic Thought, Beit Morasha College, Jerusalem. He was ordained, well, there you go, it's in the middle, in the middle of your bio. In 1977, he received his PhD from Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 1986 in the era of rabbinic thought. From 1989 through 1999, he was a member of the Shalom Hartman Institute for Advanced Studies in Jerusalem, where he also served as director for interreligious affairs. Um, he has published books and articles that you can read about in the materials that I sent out to you. I believe he hangs out with some of the more interesting religious leaders in the world. Hopefully we'll hear about some of those stories. Um, in connection with our program tonight. And the goal of bringing um, uh, Alone here, um, aside from introducing you to him, is uh, we'd like to bring him back to have a major interfaith uh, discussion in our community. So hopefully we'll pull that off. Alone, the state, the uh, stender is yours, right? Thank you. Okay. So the latest jerk joke I learned yesterday goes as follows. Uh, a rabbi, a bishop now, and, uh, and, uh, no, an imam, whatever, imam, yeah. Oh, my wife just arrived, hi. Uh, an imam on a plane, and the pilot comes and announces it's about to crash, and there's only three life helmets. And he says, bye guys, uh, I mean three, three life parachutes, I'm jumping, which leaves three of them to discuss what to do next. And they have this conversation, who's most important, at which point the priest says, and therefore I just have to make this decision, I'm gonna take the second parachute and jump, and out he goes. Which leaves the imam and rabbi to figure out, well, who gets to have the last parachute? And the rabbi looks around, and he looks at the parachutes and what's there, and he says, I think we'll be okay. And the imam says, well, how could that be? There's only one, he says, the priest jumped with the tallest bag. <laughs> the point is that we need to be educated. That's really what it boils down to. Religious literacy can be life-saving, as this historical anecdote illustrates. And with this, I want to launch a discussion of some things about history of Jewish-Christian relations. And I'll do my best not to refer to my notes and I'll, I'll, I'll let it flow in according to what I think is in the air, but my notes will guide me if necessary. And I will also 
try to weave it towards the end with a description of my own work contextualized uh, within this context. Um, I, I, f I will just say that I feel extremely blessed because uh, in a space where having meeting a bishop is a big thing for a photo op, I realized what blessing my life consists of and that I sort of spend so much time with bishops and cardinals and popes and Dalai Lamas, there's only one, and chief rabbis and the major religious leaders in the world trying to do work. And therefore, if we can get through the official talk on Jewish-Christian relations, I'd like to be able to share some of that with you. So we'll use that as a, not a cliffhanger, I suppose a crashing airplane hanger, and that'll be the parachute that'll bring us down from the heights of the talk we're launching. Christians persecuted Jews for a very, very long time. There's blood libels, crusades, a lot of bad stuff happened. Many Jews remember that. Many Jews are resentful of Christianity today. They're resentful because of what they did to us. They're resentful because of their theology. They're resentful because they took a Jewish boy and made him God. You learn about that in the upcoming lecture on the historical Jesus. They're resentful because of a lot of things. And many of them don't want to admit how much has changed. The reality today is that many Christians, and since I'm talking about Catholics, from here on, when I speak about Christians, I'm going to refer to, I, I will define that as Catholics because they really are the subject of today's conversation. Catholics are the Jews' best friends, globally, internationally, politically, religiously. In the entire interfaith arena, if you think about it, who is today closest to the Jews? It's the Catholics, unequivocally, worldwide. Who speaks loudest against anti-Semitism globally? Catholics, of course. What happened? How did this happen? How did, how did this about face come about? It's, I would suggest, the most extreme about face in the history of relations between different religious groups. Never before have we witnessed a situation of moving from total enmity to 180-degree turn. Now, that turn is represented by two words, nostraitat. Last time, which was back in Pittsburgh, in the University of Duquesne, I asked a bunch of Catholic students there, who's heard about nostraitate? And believe it or not, not a single person has. I think I'm going to get a better show of hands, but just as a kind of orientation, so who knows about nostraitate already? Wow, you guys are so educated. Let's talk about my work at Elijah then. <laughs> so what is it? Or I might, I might allow me to, to do that. In that case, in that case, what I need to then, uh, so I, maybe I can skip the preliminaries then. There are, there are a bunch of questions associated with Nostra Aetate. Nostra Aetate, who has read Nostra Aetate? Wow, all power to you guys. So Nostra Aetate actually started as a document on the church's attitude to Jews as part of the Second Vatican Council. It ended up as something different. It went through multiple iterations, and there's a specialist in this room who wrote her, P, her, her MA thesis on the multiple iterations and development in Nostraitate, because we didn't know if the flight would be on time, she asked me to speak on her behalf. So that's my wife in the back row there. <laughs> and uh, one of the things I've learned from Therese is that how political the process was, and to what extent they started out wanting to do one thing and they ended up doing another. And both are important, and, but they also show some of the complexity of what we're facing today. It started, to a large extent, 
by, or at least a central thrust of it, was a Jewish historian who'd lost his family in the Shoah, studying Christianity, realizing how much harm Christian teaching has done and how it's led to the destruction of Jews in the Holocaust, asking for a meeting with a pope who was previously a papal nuncio, in other words, chief diplomat in Turkey and who saved many lives. His name was John 23rd. And finding a hearing in him. And John 23rd was inspired to bring about change in the church, which happens in the church through convening great councils. And he got on the agenda the question of revisiting Catholic relations with Jews. It was a complicated process. The cardinal who was chosen to entrust it, to do the work was someone who the Pope trusted by the name of Cardinal Bea. Bea was, was uh, consulted with Jews and Christians, and there was Jewish input to the process. And as it went from one draft to the second, it moved from being a document about Judaism to being a document about Catholic Church and world religions. And really only the fourth paragraph of Nostra Aetate is devoted to Jewish-Christian relations. And it's fairly brief. And the first point I want to make, therefore, it's, it's amazing how a brief document can bring about huge change. But that's because the document itself represents already the will for change. It represents, to a certain extent, the outcome of Christians looking at the Holocaust especially under the impetus of this encounter between Jules Isaac and the Pope and asking what we need to do different. But not exclusively. At a paper given at the recent American Academy of Religion by Therese Gottstein, uh, the thesis was put forth that it's not only the Shoah that led to it, but in fact there was a lengthy process of maturing of ideas that we need to have a new theology of Judaism. So it's, it's, as she puts it, the there was a long gestation period and the Shoah brought it to life. But the Shoah certainly played an important role in an ongoing process of Christians changing their views towards Judaism. And in the process, Christianity had to rethink what Judaism means, and this ongoing process is a process that's been going on for 50 years. The process is characterized by several aspects. The first, of course, is the publication of the Declaration itself. And the reason we're talking about it today is because on the 28th of October, we celebrated 50 years. And this year, 2015, has been dotted with all kinds of conferences and celebrations where Jews and Catholics got together. And that's a way of bringing it to the awareness of various communities. We have to consider Nostra Aetate as an emblem, a flag, a symbol. It's not the it's not the document that's as important as the goodwill and the intention behind it. And therefore, Nostra Aetate is a launch of a series of documents and an ongoing process of becoming closer. And therefore, our challenge and our thought is to weigh the process in its entirety rather than just focusing on the document itself. So we recognize, and I've already suggested that, that Nostra Aetate wasn't born out of nothing. It was born out of a history that preceded it, a history of several decades of preparation of Jewish uh, new approaches between Jews and Christians with various organizations and various heroes. It 
was preceded by historical events and an ongoing dialogue. The fact that groups like the American Jewish Committee and the World Jewish Congress and even in, on the sidelines of the State of Israel could have a say in discussions of the Catholic Church or be listened to or submit documents for consideration is itself already something significant in terms of the fact that something has changed in the atmosphere. And this process then continues in various ways. So every, there have been the document and then guidelines to how to teach it and notes about it and then the follow-up document on the Shoah. And then other groups within the Catholic Church have published also related documents. Uh, one document appeared in 2001 on how Jews and Christians read the Bible differently with some remarkable statements because what Nostra Aetate has achieved and the process that's been launched has been a process of legitimation and recognition. Judaism suffered a history of lack of recognition. That need not have been the case. Judaism and Christianity could have coexisted alongside one another like, say, Orthodox and Chabad, or like Orthodox and Reform, or like some substreams that had there been will or possibility could have lived together. History worked out differently. Whether the history was providential or whether the history was accidental is something theologians will debate. Uh, I'll get to that a little bit later on about some contemporary responses to Nostra and how some see it as providential and some see it as accidental or historical. But be that as it may, the, they could have coexisted, but they, they were characterized by mutual lack of recognition. And what changed in Nostra Aetate, and to a large extent we can use here the language of diplomacy, is the move towards recognition, and to a certain extent, mutual recognition. Because funnily enough, the situation had been so reversed that globally speaking, I would argue, that today Catholicism recognizes Judaism more than Judaism recognizes Catholicism. And that's a very interesting twist and something that we need to give some thought to and part of the challenges that lies ahead. In what way was Judaism recognized? It was recognized through the fact that Jews were cleared of the charge of deicide. In other words, the killing of God. It was recognized that the, and there's nuances, it's not clear, did the, 60, did the 65 statement already say so explicitly or did it only come out in the ensuing 20 years? But it came out that the Jewish covenant remains valid and therefore that Judaism is a valid path. It continues in documents such as the uh, commission, biblical commission and the document I mentioned on the reading of the Bible where the Christians affirm the legitimacy of Jewish reading of the Bible as a valid path of interpretation for Jews. And they affirm the legitimacy of Jewish expectation of a Messiah as a legitimate expectation. These are remarkable statements that one, have not, one would have not thought possible only 60, 70, 80 years ago. In fact, some of them one would have not thought possible 20 years ago. So it's an ongoing process, and therefore when we're talking about this advancement, it's an advancement that's based on a kind of iterative, accumulative process where things become stronger. And of course, as things become stronger, then you look more carefully to so what is not working, what needs to work, and who needs to do what. And from the Jewish perspective, and I believe at least 80% of the audience here is Jewish, maybe probably more. Uh, from the Jewish perspective, it raises the question, so what are we doing in response, and are we, are we responding adequately and appropriately? So what are the forces that are allowing this to move forward? Well, there's no doubt 
that the declaration of Nostra Aetate is making all the difference because in a sense the door has been opened and then because it's emblematic everything flows from it. Now, because, as I mentioned earlier, the original document became a document on world religions, why was it not only on Judaism but world religions? Because when the bishops convened in St. Peter's in 63 and 64, they said, why only Judaism? And what's this going to do to our relationship with Arab countries? And what, how is this going to be perceived by others? And then gradually it changed from a document on Judaism to a document on world religions. And so, in the evolution of, of uh, dealing with Nostra, I've actually lost my track of thought, um, which is why I'm struggling to see why did I say what I just said. Um, never mind, it'll come back as soon as I start talking. So, in this iterative process of growing further in reflection on, on the different religions, oh yeah, the political process. So the political process was playing into, into the Second Vatican Council itself, but because of the politics of it, we lived with this reality that the Vatican, which is both a religious body and a state, had not, did not recognize Israel. Now this was a huge obstacle and led to the lack of credibility of the whole process on the Jewish side, because Jews were saying, Oh, you telling us about a new era? You won't even recognize us as a state. That changed in 1993. Now, the change was part of post-Oslo processes in a different atmosphere in the air. It relied a lot on the goodwill of one pope who loved the Jews a lot, and I'll get back to pope, I'll, I'll move on to popes in a moment. And yet, despite the fact that it had nothing to do with Nostra the declaration, what's called the fundamental agreement of between Israel and the state of the Vatican, begins by signaling to Nostra Aetate. In other words, even the political, diplomatic relationships ultimately founded on the recognition that Nostra Aetate is a sea change, and this is one further consequence. So one expression then of the ongoing development is breaking past the political barrier. So in a sense, today we're dealing partly with political issues, because the Vatican is partly political, and partly, and even more significantly so, with religious issues. So, popes. An amazing thing. So, we had Pope John XXIII, who started it. He died during the council. He didn't get to see the declaration. Probably he was replaced by Paul VI, who was less warm. He was a little bit, I think of him as, in Yiddish we think of as a cult of fish. Because uh, fish is a Christian symbol. So, <laughs> so, he wasn't as warm in his personality, and nevertheless, he, he went on with the process as an indication of the difference between where Paul VI were and where his successors were. When Paul VI visited the Holy Land, he didn't come to Jerusalem. He kept his distance. There was ambivalence. There, there wasn't full interreligious encounters. He came, he came and he didn't come, which was really a sign of a an ambivalence that still existed there. This changed with a situation, a remarkable situation, of three consecutive popes, all of whom were extremely positive to Judaism, two of whom had close personal relationships, and the present one is just mind-blowing. He takes his rabbi where he goes with him. <laughs> so it started with John Paul, who grew up in the Krakow region, and he had 
Jewish friends, and that marked him. He, he knew Jews, he lived with Jews. Jews were a reality for him, and a friendly reality. And great soul and great saint that he was, that left its mark in how he approached Judaism. It made him take certain gambles, even in relation to the state of Israel, gambles that to a certain extent had not fully paid off because they lacked the appropriate response on the Jewish side in honoring certain agreements with the Catholic Church that are only now being worked out more than 20 years later. And where he traveled the world, he met with Jews, he went to synagogues, and he made a message on Judaism part of his global, global statement. So as part of that, he also took new steps in making declarations of where Catholics are in Israel. So the statement, if there was some debate as to whether Nostra Tata already proclaimed fully the self-sufficiency of the Jewish religion as a self-standing path, any such doubt was dispelled by John Paul II. And Cardinal Ratzinger had a lot of positive stuff to say, despite his being, for a while, the chief inquisitor of the church, and despite the fact that he made a number of significant faux pas in relationship to Judaism, at least one of which I'll talk about later. And there have been points of contention along the way, and yet the relationship has been advancing, and the popes have played an important role in publicizing this movement. One of the challenges has been the filtering down of Nostra Aetate to communities, both Jewish and Christian. Christians have done a much better job of it. Of course, it's their document. And still, there's been a struggle to what extent the Christian world really knows about those changes. In the US, it's no. Europe, it's no. Latin America, less no. Asia, less no. Even Catholic seminaries, is it really taught? Is it really known? Not so clear. I've spoken to rectors of seminaries, they say, we just don't have time for it. Well, no time means not important enough on our part list of priorities. And yet, the public image is advancing through uh, formative and representative friendships, and the popes, of course, are the most mediatic figures. I mean, the pope is the number one mediatic figure in the religion in religion globally, right? It's just the way it is. So, if the pope features relations with Jews as part of his agenda, that delivers a message to the global community. It's as simple as that. So, this pope comes to power after the present one comes to power after already having had good interfaith relationships in Buenos Aires. Who said she's from Buenos You said Buenos Aires, right? Uh, from Buenos Aires. And as a consequence, he, not only is the rabbi there at his coronet, just think, think of this reality. I, I mean, I, think about the reality of the funeral of John Paul II with the representative of the chief rabbinate of Israel attending the funeral. Think about the coronation of Pope Francis with Jewish representatives worldwide attending. Think of the canonization, in other words, when he's declared saint of John Paul II, when representatives and friends from the Jews are sitting right at the top of that. This didn't happen 100 years ago. It was unthinkable. How, how did this come about? It came about through this accumulative process, through these relationships. So Francis is taking uh, uh, Avi Skorka around wherever he goes. I believe he was in Philadelphia when the poet, right? Yeah, he, he, Pope wasn't in, he wasn't in this building, right? What are you saying Skorka here? Was. Skorka was. In this building, he came to speak to you guys? Wonderful. No, no, he, he wasn't. He was in Christ's Christ 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 Cathedral. Christ Cathedral. In, in, in where? The diocese office of Christ Cathedral. Okay, so he comes and he speaks. So he, yeah, when, when the Pope comes to, to the Holy Land, Skorka travels with him. We don't have enough rabbis in Israel. So, you know, he takes him with him where he goes. So all these are, 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 are momentous indications of paradigm shifts. And we, we 
who are observing this all along said to each other, well, it couldn't get any better. Well, it did. We don't know how it could get any better. I suppose the Jewish Pope is the answer. But uh, <laughs> short, short of that, short of that, it's really something to acknowledge and to celebrate. So having then noted this ongoing process of improvement <laughs> under this label, under this branding, you know, this is a good way. I just, I, this is a new insight I just got now. Nostra Etate is an exercise in interreligious branding. Because it's not, it's not even about the content, it's about creating the brand. And when you move then beyond the brand to the actual product, here then the question arises, and many questions arise. And the questions arise, what is working, what is not working, and where do we still need to go in order to make it work better? And let me, let me, devote, let me devote some moments to that. So one, one dimension of it is the question of filtering down. And let me talk about the filtering down from the Jewish and the Christian perspective. So from the Jewish perspective, from the Christian perspective, I, I just spoke about the fact that the church has more efforts to engage in in order to make its own teaching better known. But the Jews, in the, on the Jewish side, the situation is, as they say in Hebrew, on the face. In other words, it's, it's very, very discouraging. You may not realize that here because the U.S. is where it's best. In the U.S., the degree of friendship, relationship, and therefore knowledge of processes is highest than anywhere in the world. Filtering from religious professionals to educated lay, lay individuals, uh, as even represented in the echoes that I, and the faces that I see here in the room. This is not the case elsewhere in the Jewish world. It's not the case in Europe where the communities are smaller, but more than anything, it's not the case in Israel. Israel is virtually unaware of what is happening in Jewish-Christian relations. Israel idealizes the Pope. It loves the Pope. You can see live masses from St. Peter's on Ynet. You can see any important moment of something, the whole world is looking to this happening in St. Peter's. It'll be televised on Ynet, which is, Israel, which is Israel's prime website. And yet, the degree of really understanding what's going on in Jewish-Christian relations is very, very low. 50 years, okay? events, celebrations. So what happens during the 50th anniversary of Nostra Tat in Israel? There's only one television channel, the French-speaking network, that hosts one French-speaking scholar who's sitting in the back of the room. And at, because at her initiative, the network decided to do a story on 50 years for Nostra Etate. None of the None of the media in Israel related to 50 years in Nostra Etate. Catholic media did, the Pope did. They spoke about it, celebration. Doesn't get picked up in the media. The Pope, you, Israel is characterized in a wonderful way between stubborn Orthodox and ignorant the rest of them. And it makes it sometimes very, very hard to work there because the number of people who are educated, either academically or because they brought a certain openness because they come from typically English-speaking world, it's a small minority. And as a consequence, there's either incredulity like the giraffe story, you know, this guy walks into a zoo and he walks to the to the cage of the giraffe and he stands there and he looks and reflects and says, this couldn't be, this just can't be. And he just walks away, because it couldn't be that there is such a thing with such a tall neck. Well, many Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox approach the changes in the Catholic Church like it was a giraffe. It just couldn't be. But it is, it just couldn't be. 
And then the others are so ignorant and so disinterested that very little happens. In 2000, one of the outcomes of the papal pilgrimage to Israel in 2000, when John Paul was there, was the establishment of a permanent dialogue committee between the chief rabbinate of Israel and the Vatican. This group has met eight, nine times, a group of experts, some couple of chief rabbis, local, and a couple of scholars and interfaith professionals, same on the Christian side. No one in Israel knows about it. You go on the chief rabbinate's website, nobody knows about it. So there's this, this disconnect between diplomatic processes that are yielding results, that are building relationships, and simply doesn't infiltrate to the communities. So unquestionably, one of the primary things that has to happen is much better job of getting the word out on the Jewish side. So this is the point about reaching to communities. Let me move on to the second, to the, to the next one, which I think is much more challenging. Our religions have their theologies. They have a worldview. Christians have gone a long way in redoing their theology. And it's, it's absolutely outstanding. What have Jews done? Have Jews been willing to look at this issue? What, what, what homework or theological work have Jews done as a counterpart, as reciprocity, as response, any of the above, to the Christian work. So I'll begin with the Jewish side and I'll get back to what the Christians I, still, I think still need to do. So on the Jewish side. So if Christians were willing to affirm that Judaism is a valid religion, are Jews willing to affirm that Christianity is a valid religion? Of course, the question here is who is Jews? Because, and in which center, okay? Some may care less and some may find it easier. I want to talk about the Orthodox, and when I say Orthodox, I mean Orthodox in America and in the US, because I think the other denominations have an easier time with it. And the Orthodox, in many ways, are the most similar in mindset to the Catholics, and therefore, it's easier to measure whether there is or there isn't reciprocity. And it, 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 it improves as we go down in the, on the liberal scale. So what bothers, what bothers Jews about Christianity? Well, first of all, what's been the reception of Nostra Aetate? So Christians do declarations. Jews don't do declarations. You may, not be able, you may not fault Jews for not issuing a declaration. It took until 2000 for the first Jewish declaration to emerge, in, in a sense, in response to Nostra Aetate. It's a document many of you are familiar with. It's called Dabru Emet. It was produced primarily by a group of uh, I would say non-Orthodox Jewish scholars. One of them was arguably Orthodox. That's uh, I'm growing old. Um, oh, he's in Toronto. I see his face. Uh, yeah, but not about. I thought skiing keeps you fresh and young. Uh, I'll leave it and we'll come back. That's the secret. I, I, won't, I, I won't mention it. So there was one, the one, one which, shall we say, orthodox, more or less uh, orthodox persuasion. Most of them were not, and about 200 conservative reform rabbis signed on it. The Bruemet. So the Bruemet was the document, uh, the document that came out. It came nine brief pointers on a Jewish view of Christianity, basically affirming similarity. Same God, same history, same values, a reference to the Shoah. But at least it was some kind of a, some kind of a response. 
no response on behalf of the Orthodox, nothing, nothing really meaningful. But here's where the beauty of 50 years is. With 50 years happening, there's a kind of a rush to issue new statements. Next week or the following week, the church is going to issue a new statement, but it's, it's shrouded in secrecy because the church recently watched the Da Vinci Code and therefore it's keeping it a secret. <laughs> um, last week was an important week. Was it last week? It was last week. Uh, the, the, the Council of Rabbis in France uh, had a big celebration of 50 years because France is really the most important Jewish center in terms of numbers and also official engagement because they have a state. England does too, but I think France ultimately is more active. They had a big celebration of 50 years, and the rabbis there, uh, including the chief rabbi of France, issued a statement in response to Nostra Aetate. It took 50 years, but it happened. The document is very interesting because it affirmed, it's first, more than anything else, a recognition of the fact that Christians have taken the step. In other words, it's the affirmation of the step itself. We recognize that these changes have happened and therefore they're important, therefore they allow us to collaborate and to learn from one another. Jews never went up, never came out publicly saying we recognize that. And in the process, it also recognizes the positive value of Christians as partners in moving forward. There's another one that's more daring theologically because the, 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 this statement that was published last week by the, you, you'll Google it, you'll find it, by the rabbis of France doesn't speak about the divine intention. It only speaks about the fact that we recognize that they've apologized and we recognize that they're reviewing Judaism and now they're partners and we should be, be working together for the embitterment of the world. There's a group of Orthodox rabbis who are issuing a statement. I'm involved in that a little bit. Uh, some of the big names, some of the recognizable names, or the two probably most recognizable names affiliated with that are Yitz Greenberg and Shlomo Riskin. And they're appling the ante. Their statement says, it's not an accident of history. It was the will of God. There are two covenants. We recognize that there's another covenant, which is the covenant initiated by God through Christianity, because Jews and Christians have to work together for tikkun olam, and therefore it's a meant religion. So it's a stronger statement. I don't know how far it's going to catch. I tried to tone it down a little bit. I was overruled. Uh, so there's going to be a weaker statement, but I think a very effective and good one. And then a more, a more extreme one, and we'll see who, who signs on to it and the, that we're about to release probably at the same time as the Catholic Church releases its statement, its new unknown statement. So it's starting to happen. And maybe with these statements, there's going to be more awareness. But there's no doubt that education is the key and education is not moving forward. So going back then to theology, what have been responses to theology? So Jews have responded by way of some statements. Have Jews responded also by way of moving forward in terms of their own theological work? Some have, some have. I just mentioned Yitz Greenberg. He spent a lot of important energy on that. I've been convening processes as part of the work that I'll tell you about in about five or seven minutes, more or less. I think that's when we'll have to shift gear. Uh, um, I've been convening groups of uh, Jewish scholars. There's a publication that came out in 2012 in the Lippmann Library called Jewish Theology and World Religions, in which we looked at the question of what does Judaism have to say about all world religions, and what kind of nostra aetate do we Jews need to do, especially if it's not only a view of Christianity, but a view of all religions. What's the homework we need to be engaging in? And it's an ongoing focus of my own work. What is a contemporary Jewish theology of religions? And I'm not alone. There are various people. Interestingly enough, mostly English-speaking, uh, who are doing this kind of work. And the Israelis are 
not yet fully catching up. Most of these conversations are happening in English, but they're happening. The big challenge in terms of theolo theology is what, you know, each of our religions has its own DNA. The Jewish DNA centers around the issues of truth, but even more so around the issue of idolatry, what we call Abodazara. So how we legitimate or do not legitimate another religion is does it meet our criteria of what we define as Abodazara? Is there anyone here who needs further explanation on the term Abodazara? Okay, so Abodazara, that's okay. I know as a teacher, when a person raises, there's 10 others who are bashful and don't raise their hand, so that's okay. She's, she's raising her hand for all of them. So Abodazara, it means foreign worship. And it's the way Jews view other religions as either offering, worshiping another god or giving, worshiping the one god in a foreign and unacceptable way. And this kind of knee-jerk response going back to biblical times that when you characterize another religion as Avodazara, you basically are mocking it and you're invalidating it and you keep your distance from it. And therefore Jews have been very easily holding on to the position that Christianity is Avodazara. Um, I'll tell you in a second how this played out when I moved to my own work into a contemporary campaign that I was just engaged in. Are Jews willing to reconsider the thought of Christianity of Avodazara? Some are because there are precedents in the Middle Ages that Christianity is not. And yet, because there's not enough relationship, there's not enough awareness, there's not enough will to bring about theological changes. You need will. Maybe the Shoah or maybe ongoing processes produce the will for Christians to make a change. What will is there for Jews to bring about a change? The answer is very little. But part of that very little is ignorance. Because, because Jews don't know what's going on. They, neither most of them do they realize how central an ally the Catholic Church is. Many of them are still living in, in, in the era of blood libels and what they did to us. And because they don't know about the changes, and they don't because they don't get the bigger picture, or they have a different read of where Judaism is, there isn't the will. If there isn't the will, then the way that is there is not path isn't taken. I, I consider that to be one of the biggest challenges that we have to deal with, and one that I personally have devoted extensive attention to. Uh, in the list of publications, I, I believe Ari circulated some stuff on me. Uh, I have a book that came out two weeks ago or last week or today, I don't know, sometime now. Uh, it's called Same God, Other God, Judaism, Hinduism, and the Problem of Idolatry. So the book, if you go on Amazon on my page, you'll see there's more publications than were shared with you. But the most recent one that came out just now is actually devoted to the problem of idolatry in Christianity and in Hinduism and working through Christianity as a way of thinking through the problems in relation to Hinduism. So while Hinduism is, a, is, is something that I spend a lot of time thinking and dialoguing with, our precedent is Christianity. We know there are precedents for dealing successfully with the problem of Odazara in relationship to Christianity. But if Jews don't want to take that path, or if there isn't the will, or there aren't the relationships, then we, one can't advance on that path. So that's on the Christian, on the Jewish side, the, the need to do theological work that isn't yet happening. On the Catholic side, there remain two important issues that I think still need to be tackled. The one issue is the issue of mission. And this is a very thorny one because Christians are having a hard time deciding whether Jews should, de facto there's no mission to the Jews. Christians do not, Catholics do not practice missionary, to, to missionary work to Jews. And many of them are willing to, on principled grounds to say one shouldn't ever do so. Many are still having a hard time. In 2000, there was a group of Jewish, Jewish Christian scholars that met and issued a statement to that effect in 2002, then in 2007 it was the Conference of Catholic Bishops of the USA 
came together and said, no, 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 we always need to be able to keep the door open. But did they mean active missionary work or just the fact that, you know, by my witnessing to the faith, there's always some implicit invitation. And this problem of interreligious dialogue and missionary work is always a slippery slope and an unresolved issue. And one of the things that has many religions suspicious in relation to the true intentions of Christians and or Catholics as they practice interreligious dialogue. I'm personally less skeptical in relation to Jews, but it remains an issue. And just think of Pope Benedict's revisions to the Latin Rite of Good Friday, where he actually reintroduced the notion of the prayer for eventual conversion of Jews, and changes to the uh, uh, David Novak, that was the scholar whose name didn't come back to me on time, uh, changes to the Catechism, uh, um, who, who uh, uh, that had removed uh, the full validity of Judaism as a self-standing path and reintroduced uh, a view of Judaism that still somehow stays hopeful to recognition of both covenants and what is the future which messiah, which messiah will we all recognize is it the same one or a different one these issues are unresolved and consequently the implications for missionary work and I think those two oh, so that's one issue that needs to be dealt with and the second issue that needs to be still dealt with adequately is the question of the land it took a long time to recognize the state of Israel, but Catholics have not yet fully digested the implications of what the land of Israel and even political sovereignty in the form of the state of Israel mean to Jews theologically. And that issue has to be, has to be dealt with and grappled with. And it's an ongoing subject of debate and it's beginning to take shape. But uh, because of the broader political context, because the church, Catholic Church is universal and appears and, and, and lives in many countries, so how do Jews fit into the whole thing? Okay, so much for an overview of Jewish-Christian relations, which can be summed as hugely impressive and yet work to do, and subtitled, and a lot of that work is on our side. And that's the brief summary of what I've said up now. So now, what do I do and how do I fit into this big puzzle? So I fit into this puzzle as a scholar and as an activist. Not as a rabbi in much as, as much as my voice is not a rabbinical voice. I don't have a congregation, I don't have a community. I have, a, I have teaching and organization and a lot of networks and dialogues. So I mentioned already some projects of mine that are involved in creating new thought content on this. I, I, I already referenced two books and I won't reference others. And they're, they're easily searchable on the internet. Like Nostra Aetate, my own work is informed by a sense that ultimately you can't do interreligious conversations in a two-way street. They have to be said in a broader way. 50 years ago, it may have been political. Today, it's also political, but it's necessary. Jews are no longer only talking with Catholics. So many Jewish Christian centers have become Jewish Christian Muslim. And I myself, when I started the institution that I had that was created in 1996 as the Elijah School for the Study of Wisdom in World Religions, emphasizing the wisdom and the study and the less political dimensions and the spiritual enrichment, included in it not just Jews, Christians, and Muslims, where you have communities in Israel, but also Hindus and Buddhists and Sikhs. And I, since the late 90s, I've been bringing scholars of all religions to Jerusalem because I think our agenda has to be spiritual and theological and that by bringing into Jerusalem members of other faith traditions, we're actually helping to change the story because now the conversation changes from this family conflict to the core spiritual values and what they mean and how they can play out in the local situation. Uh, 
So my own work has been characterized by this broader approach. And it's taken an academic component of teaching and convening, uh, convening creating consortia, teaching seminarians, uh, doing study programs in Israel. But because Israel has, for political reasons, at various points been inhospitable to theological and interreligious dialogue by the sheer fact that when there's violence on the ground, not only do people not talk to each other, but people aren't even there who might want to talk to each other because they don't feel safe. So following many years of initial growth and UNESCO sponsorship and various international partnerships, in the early years of the new millennium, we had to change direction and move from being an Israeli organization to being an international organization. And that led to two assets that are a lot of what I spend my time on. The one is the Elijah Interfaith Academy. Some of the publications that you will see that I have edited and many others that are still in the pipes are the result of the creation of the first and today, to, up to today, the only interreligious think tank that convenes scholars of all religions to think together about contemporary issues. So the idea was, okay, if we can't train students in Jerusalem, let's convene scholars and create resources. In a sense, we are the upper layer, the, theor the theoreticians of interfaith engagement that provide theory to a movement that's on the ground, it's moving forward, praxis is advancing, but theory has to catch up. How do you justify, how do you account, how do you provide the theory? And we've worked on projects such as, how do you move, how do you create theological hospitality and move from hostility to hospitality? How do you share wisdom between traditions? How do you develop a notion of interreligious friendship? How do you deal with poisonous historical memories and how do you heal the memories that have been poisoning relationships? Each of these things that I'm, I'm giving two seconds to is now a published volume that, that is subject for, for conversation. And then in turn that raised the question, so who is going to own this work? And that in turn led to the creation of the Elijah Board of World Religious Leaders, which I would humbly, and not so humbly, argue is the most august assembly of world religious leaders in conversation constructively. When we wanted to start the Elijah Interfaith Academy, we realized there's no point in Alon owning it. So we needed something more, even if Alon is both a doctor and a rabbi, as we discovered. So we needed, we needed to do something more in terms of the ownership of it. And that led to the recognition, okay, the world's religious leaders should be the one who own this project. So that led to an attempt that some people thought we couldn't, and remarkably, with God's help, we did, to create a gathering of high representative, but thoughtful and collaborative and self-critical and engaged and friendship-oriented and community-oriented religious leaders of all world faiths. And we've been successful, and I'm not, you can see it on our website, but we have cardinals and chief rabbis and leading imams and leading swamis and leading uh, um, Buddhist figures and the Dalai Lama and uh, various other people who have been active in our programs. Ideally, we meet biannually. Not everyone, member of the 60 or so, uh, members of the Board of World Religious Leaders come to every meeting, but overall, just about all of them have been engaged in one way or another over the years. And they have found that this gives them a way to talk because the support of scholarship gives depth to their work. So scholarship and leadership and a method of dialogue and a way of talking about the most challenging, including theological issues, 
has been part of what I've been able to bring about. So in the same way that I ask where does the dialogue go forward, I have to ask so where does my own work go forward. And let me illustrate this with one particular anecdote that's relevant and very contemporary with reference to the theological changes and how we bring about, how we bring about change. So the word really is mediatic. I have discovered in my years of working that it's not enough to have great ideas and to publish books. I don't want to tell you how the sales of my books are doing. The answer is not great, and I'm not getting rich on them. They're there as library pieces for academics, for theoreticians, for people who want to work on them. They're not bestsellers, and they probably will never become bestsellers because they're, 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 too, they're too dense and theoretical, and therefore they're meant for, for, for specialists. But how do you reach the broader public? The answer is through various acts that are high profile. What do I consider a high profile act? So you heard that a church was burned in the Galilee in the month of June. You heard that the writing on the wall, literally the writing on the wall of the church in red letters was, idols will perish, quoting the Aleno prayer. Churches and monasteries and mosques have been desecrated previously, but they always wrote on the price tag. So that was political. So I'm, I'm a member of the Tagma Ear group, so I respond as part of a larger group. But here I felt this was religious. Now you've got to respond. And, and they're responding this way because of the theological question of the status of Christianity as idolatry. And if it's idolatrous, then you need to do something. So sometimes you get this feeling you do something about it. So I convened leading rabbinical figures, and I convened the Knesset speaker, and I had this idea that I think was inspired to do a crowdfunding campaign. The Jews should help rebuild what other Jews destroyed in the name of religion. And how many people here heard about the crowdfunding campaign to rebuild the church? Nobody did. Oh, that's really bad, because it was, it was fairly, well, fairly well publicized in various media, including US media. Uh, so, the point was to deliver a two-fold message. External, How did it go? Huh? How did it do? Very well. It exceeded the expectations. We set, we set, we set the goal and went beyond the goal. Okay. Uh, and, but its success was not in terms of the finances. Its success was in terms of French building, delivering a message, fixing the Chilul Hashem, the desecration of the divine name that was implied and showing a counter move on behalf of Jews that want to repair something. It was an internal message because it required implicitly addressing the question of Christianity's status as idolatry and getting a group of rabbis to say, whether it is or whether it isn't, we're going to support it. Many of them held that Christianity was not, and that led to open debate in religious websites. What is such and such a rabbi doing building a church? And the rabbi gets interviewed and says, I don't think Christianity is idolatry. I think you guys got it wrong. It's a huge educational achievement to start you know, getting the balls rolling around that. And, to be, you know, when, and when, I, when I visit the Bishop of Galilee, not just for a photo op, and he tells me, you know, alone, every group that comes here, I tell them about what you did, and it helps change the perspective of what's going on. So it's like a small gesture, but it's mediatic. I'll give you another mediatic moment. Uh, when Pope Benedict was in the country, I don't know how many of you follow Benedict, but Bened Benedict gives his speeches like this. He reads from the paper, and he has very important things to say. And if you can listen very well, he has very deep theological insights that he likes to share with people and they communicate to the extent that you can follow. And I said, this isn't working. The message isn't coming across. Let me do something. So I got the Vatican to agree 
to do a kind of kumbaya moment in which we compose a song, Salam, Shalom, Lord grant us peace, get the religious leaders to sing together, to hold hand and to give a message to the world. Right? Simple, right? You don't need a PhD for that. You gotta think in other ways, but you need to be motivated. And that moment defined the trip for half the world because those that happened to be watching at that point in time and the networks didn't know was coming and therefore they couldn't plan it because everything was last minute. But for Europe, that image redefined the papal visit. And what I share, want to share with you right now is the bit, biggest mediatic dream that I'm working on. And this is where I want you to open your hearts and I want you to reflect on how you can, in what way you can partner with it or point the way to partners. Isaiah says like this, Isaiah says, my house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. Someone approached me and said, well, how do we realize this prophecy today? House of prayer for all peoples here in Jerusalem. You know, state of Israel, prefigure something messianic. Let's prefigure something messianic of this vision. And I shot forth the answer saying, well, take HOP of prayer and add the E for education, create the house of prayer and education, the acronym of which is and hope is what we need in the world today. And this led to years of design. And I have the brochures here and the drawings and we have the plot identified and the whole business model identified and everything to create in Jerusalem a first of its kind and only one in the world. And it has to be Jerusalem as Patriarch Bartholomew who's one of the board members says, if not in Jerusalem, where else? The Jerusalem, the city that the whole world looks to and that to help change the narrative through a public, visible institution that would bring to it pilgrims and locals and students to study activities and to artistic activities and to a museum on prayer, the likes of which doesn't exist anywhere in the world. There are very few muse museums on religion anyway. And above all, to parallel prayer spaces, active, inhabited by religious communities, by faithful, especially when everything shuts down in Jerusalem at five o'clock and there's nowhere to go and this is, remains open all night. Praying for peace, encountering each other, so that there's ongoing testimony to the global goodwill of people manifesting in Jerusalem and from Jerusalem to the whole world. And then you change the story by creating an institution that's dedicated to that. And there is no institution anywhere in the world. So, you know, if we're saying that Nostra Aetate is a flag, an emblem, I would say, nowadays, what city represents Jewish Christian relations? The answer is Rome, because that's where all the Jews go to meet the Pope. What city should represent Jewish-Christian relations? Jerusalem, because we all come out of Jerusalem. So take the Nostra Aetate flag and put it in Jerusalem. That's the dream. To create this hope center. Now, the way to get there is also something that has implications for Irvine and Orange County and Newport Beach and wherever you all may come from. Because to make the hope center a reality, we need to create a hope network of partnerships across the world of people who want to share this vision. And they already are doing that, but they may want to just join that network of meeting one another and studying and sharing wisdom. Our organization's motto is sharing wisdom, fostering peace. So sharing wisdom, engaging in prayer for peace, and then translating that into the service in the community based on a religious basis. Everyone will decide where they go, but here this, here, this is a need, there that's the need, but religions act for good based on their deepest convictions as they come together to serve the world and to grow spiritually through the mutual encounter. Simple, right? That's all we need to do. So we, we need to do it in Jerusalem, and we need for it to radiate from Jerusalem to the whole world, and we need to build this as a movement with ongoing 
shall we say, center periphery relations of people coming to Jerusalem and pilgrimages and training and going back to their community. I see the whole thing in my mind's eyes. Now I'm busy walking around telling the world, this is the vision. How do we get there together? So I want to leave you, before I open it up now for question and discussion then, with this vision of really taking not only Jewish-Catholic relations, but taking global interfaith relations to the next level of deeper engagement theologically, spiritually through prayer, collaboration through common good, broadening the horizon so all religions are involved and featuring Jerusalem as the center of a global movement that moves that direction and getting global support and presence for that. And from that will come a host of practical initiatives, creation of resources and materials that we're engaged with, all of which I don't have time to talk to you about. And I'd be very, I would be so happy if I walked away from here uh, tonight and I knew that I have two, three new partners who would like to explore further how we can do that together. That would be make me as happy as the possibility I've had of sharing with you all the good news and the future tidings of the work ahead. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, should Ari be given the right of first question? What's, what's the protocol? <laughs> Just, uh, I grew up in the modern Orthodox community in Brookline, Massachusetts. I went to Maimonides, Jewish day school, and we were taught you were not allowed to go into a church. And then there were debates about what if you go to Europe and you want to see a church. And so there was one point of view which was, well, if it's not an active church, maybe you could go in. But if it was certainly if there was a service going on, you can't go in. Go in. But that was a, that was the most liberal. So when you mentioned that the Orthodox world is not open to it, how can you get the, the, the Orthodox world to be open to interfaith discussions if they're not allowed to go into a church? So there's a circularity here because. What you do, and you need me closer. Uh, what you do, and uh, um, what you do has value for education. And those rabbis that are at the forefront are willing to to draw the conclusion. Many of the rabbis who were part of the Tapa campaign have issued rulings permitting Jews to go in to churches, and seeing the positive educational value of participating in Christian liturgy as part of their educational experience. And I would say that there are voices that are being heard today because the Jews are moving forward that were not heard 30 years ago. And the Soloveitchikin position, and for those who don't recognize it, the school that Ari went to was very much under the shadow of the local eminence grise of, and, the, and the dean of all of, of modern orthodoxy, Rabbi uh, Joseph Bear Soloveitchik, who resided there. I think nowadays there's a generation of his, of his students that are moving on and are issuing different kinds of psakim. There's a psakabra recently that's going to churches. Uh, Rabbi Rabinovich uh, uh, has issued similar rulings. Some do so more haha. Rabbi Sperber is very active in that. So though there definitely is a correlation between those who have the will to learn and to engage and don't. And therefore, we as Jews have the problem of insularity. And so Jews in America, they're open to business, they're open to social collaboration. Rabbi Soloveitchik, who's conditioned much of the modern Orthodox attitude, formulated his position in pre-Vatican II days. He didn't revise them adequately because I don't think he had time. Uh, he passed away in the 80s, if I remember correctly. There just wasn't enough time to see the, the fruit of the process. Many of his students and his students' students have recognized the need to move, to move beyond that. 
Um, getting back to the uh, to the crowdfunding um, and, and my question about how did it do, and your response about it's not about the money, it's about the statements that come out. I beg to differ. Um, uh, the statements are wonderful, but ideas are cheap, and talk is cheaper. When people put their money into building something together, that really makes a statement. But I said it was successful. It seems so, to be Well, no. So I so you said you want partners in this. Um, are you going to put up some kind of crowdfunding or something that people can contribute to the actual building of this institution? That's part of the strategy. Because you got me. You had me at hello in that. So uh, you had me at hello. Okay. You know you don't know the movie. Okay. No, I don't. But I actually look at you as so, much, much more serious donor than just the crowdfunders. We'll talk about that. So uh, you know, you know, it's very serious. I mean, if if you can if you can commit to building something that yeah. that is. We are we are waiting. So here's so here's the issue. Just so you should see what a gap I'm confronting right now between my day to day. So we're looking to the right moment to do the crowdfunding thing. This was like a little balloon. So we set our page for Pastor Girl. Thank God, in the last year it grew tenfold. Uh, so we had we have to get our numbers up and our networking, and that meant that our website could be completely little things like that. But so now we've done a little project like this. We've said let's create a virtual thing. We had a rabbi, a sheikh, two nuns and a swami, because I wanted to have the Hindu thing, uh, doing prayers on the walls of Jerusalem with Jerusalem saints, as resources to go on YouTube. And the idea is to create high-level artistic inspirational things that can go there and to incorporate that into, yeah, into those, the... Those are substantive, they're I, real. I said some of the projects I'm not talking to you about. So this is yeah. an immediate project. I, I haven't raised yet the funds to complete that project of, of editing those movies. And I'm saying, huh, look, we come back with no money from the trip to the States, which is what it's looking like right now. You'll have to go to do crowdfunding in order to complete that project. But that's a very concrete one. And there's several other, there's a project that we're looking at right now of doing an ongoing talk show from Jerusalem of religious leaders. There's no interfaith talk show globally anywhere. You open any anything. There's, BBC has something called Interfaith Voices, where someone goes in the microphone every day to different, but there's no conversation. If we can feature Jerusalem as a place where there's an important conversation that engages the world and find networks to disseminate that from, new voices of hope can come from Jerusalem. If you want to get concrete, I have those and a whole series of other concrete steps that are leading towards that big vision, and that can be part of a conversation that I don't think everybody has to be part of, but I would be very happy to engage those who want in that conversation. Yeah. You mentioned the Catholic and the Jewish dialogue and all this. I know this is off topic a little, but what about the Muslim? How are they? It's not at all off topic because it's part of the bigger picture. Um, the Muslims are part of what we we are constantly dealing with, and my work is part of the Elijah Board of World Religious Leaders, engaged top level Muslim leaders, and Muslims are in a mess because they can't figure out what their message to the world is and what is genuine Islam, what isn't genuine Islam, and they have deservedly bad press right now, and there are some important voices that are standing to give a, a, a response to that, and they're not adequate, and I've been involved in projects with Muslim theologians, where I've moderated Muslim theologians on projects of developing contemporary Muslim theology of world religions. All that is going on. The answer is, there is hope for Islam, but they have a long way to go before they can make the move. And for my particular project, I significantly count on international Islam rather than local Islam in Israel. We have several partners uh, who signed up for the project locally, but let me illustrate to you. Um, 
we, we, we did another little test about a month ago where we started the project of praying together in Jerusalem. Going, and I think this started in Orange County. I believe there's something out of YouTube of Jews and Muslims praying together, or was it in Venice? But somewhere along the shores of the sea, uh, close, close, close by. And, and, and uh, maybe some of you know, maybe some of you have seen this. A simple gesture, right? Jews and Muslims praying along. So we said, we're going to do this in Jerusalem, a public place. Truth be told, these are bad days. I mean, when I did this filming of the Jewish Christian, the rabbi's wife didn't allow him to go to the most beautiful site in Jerusalem we had ready for filming. She said, two people were killed there. I'm not letting you go. So we had to change location. Well, the Muslims are constantly, the Muslims are afraid because they get, have so many security checks. And the Jews are afraid. And fear is in the air right now. In one way, it's the ideal time to do a project. Anyway, we had to turn up for the first session. 100 people came for the prayer, one Muslim. Only one Muslim. But we have commitments from lots of Muslims. So it's bridging that gap between the will that's there and the reality on the ground and moving forward. But it's doable and it will happen through the help of, we have tons, we have Muslims coming to us from India and from Indonesia and from Africa and from so many parts of, of and if, if, if we don't get the impact and the benefit of global Islam in Israel, even though global Muslims are there because they go on their buses, they get bus around from place to place. Sometimes, I mean, I remember talking to Muslims Musa once. I went there, there was a group of Muslims that came from I don't know, I don't know, maybe because you remember where, where were they from? India. India. Uh, there was a group of Muslims from India. And I said, well, how would you respond to this idea of a center with Jews? They loved it. So if, if that place exists, you know, build it, they'll come. And when they'll come, the locals will also start to open up. And that's a way, but there's no doubt that one of the most challenging strategies is how to engage Islam locally and globally. And yet, I know there's hope because I know how many good Muslim partners are. Let's do uh, three more questions. There are so many topics in religious tolerance that you brought up, it's hard to know where to, uh, where to focus. But you used the expression early in your talk a number of times, the concept of legitimate religions. Can you please define that? What is a legitimate religion in the work that you're doing, and who chooses? Um, because of the pressures, I'm not going to answer questions that I'm going to collect them, and I'll do one synthesis for everything. Yeah. Uh, two things. One is uh, locally, on the west coast of California, at least the, the uh, Pacifica Institute and others of the Hizmet movement follows the student within. We're very active in reaching out to interfaith activities. I've spoken to them, I remember talking about what I said. So they're a source. But the thing, uh, when I turn on TV or get mail from Christians, let's say support for Israel, it's always the evangelical right, the Hagi crowd, and those. You didn't comment on that as a force or a presence. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to get all the questions out on the ground and I'll, I'll address. Please introduce yourself. Mike, Mike Rubin. Yeah. Um, Sounds Jewish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did Nostra amend or revoke any doctrine in Catholicism that was felt to have divine authority? And <clears throat> if in Judaism we recognized uh, Catholicism or Christianity as a legitimate religion, would it, in effect, amend or revoke a doctrine, particularly things in the Talmud that are felt by Orthodox to have divine authority? Thank you. Next question. Yeah. What's your name? Howard Merowitz. Um, you talked about theological work that has to be done on the Jewish side of this. And it strikes me that Judaism really doesn't have 
kind of organized theology in the way that Christianity does. And there's no central point determining whatever that is. And the Judaism is much more about practice than theology. So when you say Judaism has theological work to do, I don't understand how that can possibly happen. Question is correct. Uh, yeah. Any other questions in the room? <coughs> yeah. What's your name? You tell me. Yeah, Frank Stern. Frank Stern. Frank Stern. I, I just wanted to make you aware of the fact that at least in Orange County, possibly Los Angeles and Orange County, there's been an ongoing uh, dialogue between, Christian, between Catholics and Jews for some generations now. And we're very, very proud of that. We have a wonderful relationship. The last two bishops in Orange County have been very supportive, been a faithful. So we're pleased about that. We also have an interfaith network in which uh, Muslims and Sikhs and uh, Buddhists and uh, others participate as well, including the Catholic Church. Obviously. So we're very proud of that as well. You're doing well. I know that. Thank you. So one of the things we've been talking about, and I just want to share it with the group, was that we've been using as our basis for theological sharing and discussion in the Catholic Jewish dialogue uh, Rabbi Skorka and uh, the, the Pope's book, the book that they co-wrote together. So it's something I would recommend for people to look at, and it's a wonderful document to share. They don't always agree on. Thank you. Yeah. And there was last question? Yeah. I was just thinking that the focus... You can ask me how I do with mine, right? Yeah, you want to say yeah, that? No, I was actually going to ask something completely different. Um, we seem to be focused on more of the mainstream religions rather than the extremists, and. I know various books I've read, they talk about we're being blind to some of these extreme groups that just have no interest in getting along. So how does the Interfaith Center, uh, the Academy, and also this Hope Center, how would that actually go up against these kinds of groups that have no interest in the uh, same Okay, I will give quick, you know, snappy answers now. To not silly questions. Uh, for the group of Man Magazine. Uh, so the questions break down to two. They break down to theological questions, the questions that relate to my work. In other words, they, they relate respectively to different to the two parts of the lecture, the Nostratactic part and the Elijah part. I'll begin with the Nostratactic part questions. Uh, the question of what, what is a legitimate religion? Uh, legitimate from the perspective of the reflecting religion. Every religion has its criteria. Uh, it's an interesting study, and this is in theology, in the academy, we do what we call theology of religions, which is we're looking at each, what is the theoretical background where, based upon which each religion sees another religion. So there is no absolute universal vantage, God's eye view of legitimacy. It's according to the historical criteria, but because you need to legitimate religion based on historical precedent, the question is how you apply those criteria, which in turn leads me then to, uh, uh, to Mike Rogan's question, which is divine authority. And I think that's a very important question, and the answer is no, because we're always talking about application. Uh, Christian supersession has to do with interpretation of scriptures, and there are many voices, and therefore, remarkably, when they started to reread various scholars, already pre-Vatican II, discovered certain portions of Paul's epistle to the Romans that for centuries people didn't bother reading, and they started to lift those up, and suddenly a new theology emerged. It's all quoted in Nostratata and even further in all kinds of documents that come forth. So it's a question of interpretation and application. It is never as simple, nor neither on the Jewish side nor on the Christian side as saying there's a divine commandment and and we and, and we revoke. It's always working within traditions, and that's that's exactly how 
interreligious relations work. There, this is why I kept the mantra of this talk is where there's a will, there's a way. So there has to be the will, but that will then uncovers the way which is already implicit and embedded in the tradition. And it doesn't undermine the tradition, it works from within it. And even the example that we had about entering a church is very much along the same lines. It's just a case of what you want to, uh, to lift up or not. Now, this, this of course then relates to the question of whether Judaism does not have a theology. This is an ongoing debate. That debate is older than what we have now. And I could give a separate talk on whether Judaism does or not. But it doesn't really matter because even the affirmation in terms of practice, in other words, the question of do Jews go into a church, which is in a sense the litmus test, really is the question is Christianity Abu Dazara. Now Christianity Abu Dazara is a practical question, but in that is contained the view of the Jewish God versus the Christian God. And therefore within that is implicit the view of how we understand how we read God and how we interpret Christians. And therefore it just, you go to the next step and you realize that well it is as applied theology and that when people deal with it, in fact what they're doing is going to the theoretical roots and whether it's a, you can argue that Judaism doesn't have a systematic theology. You can argue that it doesn't have a, a, an obligatory theology. You can argue that it doesn't have a centralized theology, but it's much more pluralistic. And those arguments, I would go with you. To say it has no theology is impossible in view of the fact that it's constantly taking stands on various issues in order to pronounce statements. And it's those that have to be tapped in. And it's precisely the pluralism within Judaism that allows you to work those issues through. In terms of the practicalities of my own work, uh, yes, I'm very familiar Basically, the, the two remaining questions here have to do with potential partners. One of them I just met last week, and I'm trying to get both the Pacific Institute and the entire Gulen movement as partners to all this work. And then we've got the whole question of the fact that all our religions are very pluralistic. They have extremists in there, and they have uh, uh, evangelicals, and they have people who don't come to the table. Uh, and I have no dream of changing ISIS or Osama bin Laden or the likes. I have dreams of changing those people who might be seduced to join them and they see a meaningful alternative. I have, you know, there's, there's this circle, and there's this circle, and there's the middle, and we're fighting for the middle. And that's a very significant fight, because that's where our educational work has to concentrate on. So of course there'll be, there'll be extremists who won't come to the table, and there'll be people who are not going to be part of this, and there'll be Southern Baptists. The, the evangelicals are a problem. They just do it differently. The Southern Baptists may be our problem, they just don't want to engage. So they won't engage. But Baruch Hashem, there's so many good Catholics in the world. So because there are others who are not part of the conversation, they won't do anything. So friends, thank you. Thank you for listening. And I do... I do say thank you in advance to anybody who's able to hang around for a couple of moments, either to share contact information if you need to run so that we can pick up on a conversation later, or to... Share with me your practical thoughts on how, how you or others that you know may help be part of this, that, or the other part of everything we've shared. Thank you so much. So I, uh, I wanted to thank you all for coming. Tomorrow we uh, explore the historical Jesus. Next Friday, the historical Paul turned into a very um, inter interesting interfaith CSP week. So thank you for kicking that off. I will tell you that I do read the newspapers, the actual newspapers, and I look at news, and I did never saw the story about the church being burned down in the Galilee and having um, the uh, verse from our uh, prayers. Did you know the story? Has anybody, did anybody hear that story? Yeah. Of the church burned down? Not sure. It was uh, uh, the, good, the, uh, right on the, on the, uh, the shore, the, the, the Galilee. Yeah. The, uh, the church of the um, Good Samaritan. No, fish and loaves. So uh, here's my point. It was in Haaretz. 
Yeah, I just started again the Howard's updates. Unfortunately, I don't watch that one, but that's great that it was covered. Um, I will tell you that uh, I did uh, I did subscribe to Aretz, you know, and so the only problem is now every hour I get an update about someone getting stabbed, and that's the news that I get from Aretz. So the interesting thing for me was to to learn more about uh, Catholic Jewish relationships and really focus on how how little I know Frank you do a lot, but how little we all do, and we are part of the problem just as much as the people. Uh, in Israel, I can tell you in this room, I, I don't want to speak for all of you, but I can almost tell you most of us do nothing and didn't know as much. So thank you for educating us, and hopefully now that we're educated, we will uh, maybe do something. So I guess we're going to hang out with the bishop. That'll be part of something that we're going to do. You'll be hearing about that for our March event. I'll see some of you guys tomorrow. Have a nice evening. Thank you. And Merry Hanukkah for Sunday night.